Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this session. I'm Bianca Lee, and I'll be the MC for this talk featuring Lewis Bollard from Open Philanthropy. Lewis leads Open Philanthropy's strategy for farmed animal welfare. Prior to joining Open Philanthropy, he worked as policy advisor and international liaison to the CEO at the Humane Society of the United States. Prior to that, he was a law student and an associate consultant at Bain & Company. He has a BA from Harvard University in Social Studies and a JD from Yale Law School. Today, Lewis will be giving us a talk titled Farmed Animal Welfare and Alternative Protein Opportunities in Asia Pacific. Thank you, Lewis. Welcome. I'm so excited that you're joining me for today's presentation on farm animal welfare and alternative protein opportunities in Asia Pacific. The fate of farm animal welfare in Asia Pacific is the most important topic to the fate of farm animals globally. Uh, Asia accounts for about half the world's farmed mammals, uh, just over half of the world's farmed birds, and over 90% of the world's farmed fish. Today, I'm going to be covering three different topics. The first is the drivers of these numbers of animals, what's uh, caused those changes, looking at some of the data uh, behind them and, and some of the trends we can expect in the future. The second is looking at farm animal welfare progress and opportunities in Asia. And the third is looking at alternative protein uh, prospects, uh, progress and opportunities in the year to come. So I want to start with what's been behind the rise of factory farming in Asia. And we've really seen some pretty astounding growth trends over the last 50 to 60 years. I'm going to cover on some graphs and then talk about how some of those trends, uh, we expect them to continue over time. The most basic trend is this. This shows global meat production uh, from 1961 through to 2018, the last year for which we have data. Uh, and as you can see, uh, outside of Asia, there's been a two to three X increase in global meat production. Within Asia, there's been an astounding 15x increase. So vast majority of, of the global growth in meat production has come from Asia. And to be clear, that's, that's not just that, that Asia has become an export center for the world. This is predominantly for consumption and driven by consumption within Asia. So let's break down what that looks like. Well, this is what we see when we look at the eight largest countries by population in, in Asia. And, and this is a total meat supply per person in kilograms uh, per year. So obviously, increasing populations over Asia has been a, a huge driver in the total increase you saw on the last slide. But the uh, increase in per capita consumption has actually been a much larger driver. And what you notice in, in particular here is you see how China has, has risen so dramatically alongside of Vietnam, increasing by about 6x in, in the span of just 40 years. Uh, notably, there's been far less of an increase in uh, Southeast Asia, and especially in South Asia, what you see is actually that, that Bangladesh and India, um, there has been a total increase in, in, in meat consumption because of the, the increasing population, uh, but there hasn't um, been a significant increase in per capita consumption, despite headlines to the contrary. When we look at what this uh, could look like in the years to come, and this is an aggregate of, of uh, meat and seafood, uh, and it's in grams per capita per day, not, not uh, kilograms uh, per capita per year, as, as the last uh, slide was, we see we can expect a huge amount of the increased uh, consumption in the years to come uh, to be driven by China, 
Indonesia and in the rest of Asia, countries like the Philippines, uh, Vietnam. One of the key uh, pieces driving those trends we just saw was the fact that we added in seafood there. And for the astounding trends we've seen on increases in meat consumption per capita, we've seen even more astounding increases in seafood consumption per capita uh, and, and rising to levels actually far above uh, Western levels. So again, you see here the top eight countries uh, in Asia. Um, and what you see is a trend of China, and in this case, Indonesia as well, driving substantial increases and to a level that's far higher than, so for, for in the US, for instance, uh, per capita uh, fish consumption is less than 20 kilograms per year. In Indonesia, a much poorer country, we're already seeing levels more than double that. Uh, this is what's driven the vast uh, growth in aquaculture in, in um, Asia, and particularly in China, uh, where there are now about 40 billion farmed fish, uh, by the best estimates, alive at any point in time, predominantly for this domestic consumption. When we take this to a regional level, you can also see how striking this trend is compared to the rest of the world. Uh, in both Europe and the Americas, there have been slight increases in, in fish consumption uh, since the 1960s, uh, but only, only slight. Uh, in East Asia and Southeast Asia, by contrast, uh, we've seen substantial increases. And, and uh, although this looks like it's tailing off in 2013, we actually know from, from other data sources through 2018 that this trend line has continued to increase such that uh, East Asian countries and Southeast Asian countries are now consuming far more fish per, on a per capita basis uh, than people in Europe and the Americas. That's been driving this huge boom in aquaculture. We also see a similar trend on egg consumption. Uh, although Southeast Asia and Southern Asia still lag far behind uh, Europe and the Americas, East Asia now uh, accounts for higher levels of per capita egg consumption uh, than Europe and the Americas, which already had very, very high levels. Um, and this is what's been driving uh, billions of, of layer hens in, in caged uh, production in East Asia. And even in Southern Asia, where that, that trend looks uh, far more slight, uh, just seeing uh, th that growth rate, we're already accounting for about 800 million hens across India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the recent progress we've seen on farm animal welfare, in particular, and some of the opportunities ahead. And this is a, a, a picture from a protest against factory farming uh, conditions in um, egg factory farms. Uh, this, this is coming from Korea from a couple of years ago. A real milestone in, in my mind was the 2018 uh, win that advocates secured in Taiwan with Carrefour, the largest retailer there, pledging to stop the sale of caged eggs. I think it's particularly notable that this is a pledge that had only recently started uh, to be taken by, by Western uh, retailers. So in the United States, you saw retailers taking this pledge in, in 2016 or 2017. In Europe, uh, seeing it between uh, 2015 and still up to the present day, some European retailers are still only in the process. So quite uh, significant to see this, this progress so soon in East Asia, which has relatively less of a history of, of action on battery cages. Another real milestone was uh, the following year when uh, Tesco uh, Lotus, the largest retailer in Thailand, made a similar commitment to go cage-free. Uh, and in their account case, also extended that commitment uh, to cover uh, crate-free uh, pork, which is, again, another major commitment that not all um, US or European retailers have yet made. 
Another real sign of progress in Asia is seeing this commitment from CP Foods Group, the largest Asian pork and poultry producer based out of Thailand. Um, they came up with a pretty comprehensive farm animal welfare policy over the last two years. And just uh, signaling a couple of pieces to me that are particularly significant here, they already have a significantly higher portion of their sales out of crates than uh, Tyson Foods, one of the largest U.S. producers, uh, does, and then a lot of, of other major Western producers do. Uh, they've eliminated a lot of the routine mutilations that pigs suffer on, on pig farms, again, far ahead of, of the U.S. pork industry on that. Um, and I think uh, particularly noteworthy, they've ended uh, the particularly nasty practice of eye stalk ablation on their shrimp farms, um, which to me is a really promising sign that their animal welfare policy has extended to shrimp. Uh, something that we have not seen uh, yet in Europe or the United States. We're now seeing continued progress on fast food chains and hotel groups making commitments across Asia. Uh, I'm just noting two of the bigger ones here. Last year, Subway uh, made a commitment spanning uh, most countries across Asia. Uh, more recently, Burger King made a commitment first in Thailand uh, and then in uh, Indonesia. Uh, and this here is a is a recent photo of a protest uh, from a group uh, called East in, in Taiwan, uh, pushing for a Burger King to extend that policy uh, across all of Asia and indeed uh, globally. And um, I'm hoping that with the lifting of, of COVID restrictions in Asia, we will start to see more of a resumption of these campaigns and more of an opportunity to secure more cage-free pledges across Asia. I also want to quickly note some of the legislative progress and opportunities we've seen on farm animal welfare in Asia. Uh, the somewhat crude map uh, reflects my colouring of countries in Asia Pacific based on whether they have uh, any farm animal welfare laws, uh, which is, is in blue, or none, which is, is in red, and there are various gradations of that. Uh, none of these countries, to be clear, have, have adequate laws. In, in a lot of cases, uh, they are basic standards or, or they're going unenforced. Um, but I wanted to call out a couple of, of examples that I think have, have been particularly promising over the last couple of years. Uh, one was Thailand recently announcing that it's developing voluntary uh, cage-free standards to help guide industry. Uh, another was Bangladesh last year passing an animal welfare law that includes farm animals. Um, a few years ago, South Korea upgrading its animal protection law to include explicit subsidies for animal welfare livestock farms that, that include higher welfare features like cage-free. And then in 2016, Shandong, uh, China's largest poultry-producing province, accounting for about 20% of chickens, adopting humane poultry slaughter standards, which I would note is more than the United States uh, is yet to do. Uh, and finally, we'd just note on the legislation that it seems like there's real potential for increased progress. This is from a Faunalytics survey from a couple of years ago across uh, the BRIC nations. And just showing that uh, in China and India, although support looks a little lower than it looks elsewhere uh, for a law that would require animals used for food to be treated more humanely, it's still above 50%. And uh, the survey in general showed pretty robust support across these countries. Finally, I want to touch on some of the progress we've seen on alternative proteins in Asia and some of the opportunities uh, in the years to come. Some of the most exciting developments on this score uh, this year were in China. Uh, this here is a set of promotions from Beyond Meat uh, with KFC and Taco Bell trailing their products in China earlier in the year. Uh, Beyond Meat also announced partnerships with Starbucks, uh, with Alibaba, in retail and with Metro AG, another retailer in China. 
Uh, we've also seen some of the major egg companies like Cargill and Nestle launching new plant-based lines in China. And I think we shouldn't forget too, uh, Chinese uh, homegrown brands on, on plant-based meat. Uh, you see here a burger from Zen Meat, a new uh, startup. Um, also uh, a set of products from Whole Perfect Food, which is a more traditional uh, Chinese vegetarian meat supplier. And I think one of the exciting uh, trends we're seeing with the success of companies like Beyond Meat is first seeing more startups that are, are seeking to imitate them, but provide more of a um, uh, more of a domestic uh, focus, bringing into a new market. But we're also seeing uh, the legacy players like Whole Perfect Food here, or in the US, the same things happen with Morningstar Farms and other established vegetarian meat companies, upping their game and introducing new products uh, precisely to respond to and to compete uh, with the new players and the new pressure. There's also been some exciting progress across the rest of Asia, uh, calling out just a couple of headlines from the last year here. Uh, one was, was uh, CP Foods, the, the, the giant agribusness that I mentioned earlier, had made a progressive animal welfare policy, has also been launching new plant-based meat substitutes across key Asian markets. Um, this Japanese startup, uh, I, I called out in particular, uh, less because it's a relatively small amount of money raised, but because a significant portion of that money came from a Japanese government fund, which I think is a really promising sign. We also, by the way, saw uh, Japan's two largest meat companies launch their own lines of plant-based products this year, um, very similar to what we've seen in the US with companies like Tyson and, and Cargo uh, getting in on plant-based meat, and actually in Brazil as well, it was JBS and Marfrig and, and others. And also just noting here, uh, this Malaysian startup, representative of a whole universe of startups we're seeing from Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, India, uh, startups across the board that are bringing new uh, plant-based products uh, based on the local context. And finally, I think it's, it's worth always remembering that in addition to these new uh, plant-based products, which I'm, I'm really excited about, uh, there's a huge amount of existing uh, supply of plant-based proteins. And I think it's particularly um, easy for us in, in the US uh, or in Europe, where, as, as this graph shows, uh, the diet is so heavily dependent on, on animal-based protein, uh, to assume that, that um, plant-based protein uh, can't satisfy our needs and, and that, if anything, we need lots of new products to do so. Uh, I think Asia is, is really instructive in this regard. You look at this... this uh, uh, by country, this, this chart showing, for instance, that in India, uh, the vast majority of people's uh, protein needs are already met by, by plant-based protein. Uh, that's also largely true um, in China, although there's, there's been a huge increase of, of animal-based protein beyond people's uh, daily needs uh, and in the rest of Asia. And of course, uh, I think there's, there's a lot of potential here to draw on plant-based proteins that have um, historic resonance within these cultures. So the use of tofu and, and mock meats in China, uh, the use of lentils and pulses in, in India. Um, I think it's always important we don't forget that there are these, these really rich uh, plant-based protein uh, cultures and heritages that we are drawing on. So this presentation, uh, I am excited to hear your questions and to start the discussion. Hi, Lewis. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you for that really insightful talk. Um, I think it's really promising that you've um, showcased that this surge in plant-based meat innovation and R&D um, that we see in, the, in Western countries is also being um, replicated in, in Asia. 
Um, so my first question is, you know, this, this concept of plant-based meat is new, but it's not so new in Asia because in, in countries where there are particularly large um, Buddhist communities, mock meat has been around for decades. So what actually is the difference between plant-based meat and mock meat? And is there a difference in terms of um, consumer acceptance and perception? Thanks. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I mean, China really did invent plant-based meat. And so we're, we're building on uh, that tradition with, with modern products. Um, as I understand it, a lot of the, the distinction uh, within the Chinese market is that the legacy players uh, have largely been focused on, on Buddhist consumers. And a lot of that brings with it particular product specifications. So, for instance, uh, products are meant to be more bland. It, it's del deliberate for them to not have strong flavors. Um, and I guess one um, possible sort of uh, translation of, of Mandarin for vegetarian is bland. Um, <laughs> <Wow>. So, <laughs> sort of an indication of, of how um, how much those those products have really been been targeted at a very particular niche, mm -hmm. uh, which you can imagine is is not going to be the same um, thing as if you're, you're trying to uh, target a mainstream audience. Um, and so, I think that. What I'm really hoping is that we can see some of those uh, legacy players, I mentioned Whole Perfect Foods in the, in the presentation, start to pivot toward new products that bring on uh, some of the new technologies um, that we're seeing from companies like Beyond and Impossible, um, but that also draw on, on the far longer history and, and deeper expertise they have within the Chinese market. So I, I think over time, I'm really hoping that what kind of was traditionally mock meat and what is seen as the new generation of plant-based meat will fuse together uh, into one and that, that that will be the the kind of uh, the, the winning product in the market. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I really love the fact that, you know, all these um, companies outside of Asia are really adapting to the Asian context and the Asian market. Um, one case that you brought up that um, I found really interesting was that a Japanese plant-based um, startup received a large portion of its funding from the government. So could you talk a bit more about that? Um, what were some of the incentives for government to get involved there? Yeah, so we've seen an, a number of government-backed funds across Asia um, getting into the alternative protein space. And in the case of Japan, it was a fund called A5. Uh, in case of, of Singapore, we, we've seen this with the, the Temasek uh, major fund uh, that was really involved from the get-go in, in the development of, of plant-based meat and actually uh, cultivated meats in, in the US. They've invested in Memphis meats alongside of Impossible and, and others. Um, we're also now seeing not just that level of, of investment from government-backed funds, but also seeing government um, R&D uh, expenditures going into this. So for instance, Singapore uh, within the last few years announced um, $140 million, which is split five ways within the alternative protein space. One of those is, is toward uh, cultivated meat, another one is plant-based, another one is, is microbial-based. Um, unfortunately, from my perspective, one is insect-based, um, but and I think the final one is, is waste-based. Um, but so we're seeing really kind of, I think Singapore, you know, really interesting model there, seen similar things from the European Union, uh, from Israel, from Canada, who've all made major government investments in, in alternative protein research. And I'm optimistic that we'll see a lot more of that uh, from governments across Asia in the coming years. I share that optimism, um, particularly in Australia. There is definitely a lot of um, opportunity for government and uh, uh, a lot of university institutes to get involved in some of this um, R&D. Uh, I have so many more questions, but there are a lot of audience questions coming in. Um, 
In your opinion, what is the most immediately promising research or funding opportunity in this area? I think there are a lot. Um, and I think particularly um, with, uh, I mean, obviously Asia Pacific is, is a huge region. You know, it's, it's sort of, we're talking about the majority of the world's people and the majority of the world's farm animals. Um, and so um, I, I don't think there's any one silver bullet or any, any one um, opportunity that, that could universally trump others. Um, I, I am really excited about the potential for growing the alternative protein market in China. Um, I think that we've seen some really promising signs on on on, on this front in the last uh, in the last year, and obviously there's there's huge additional scope in that market, and really the trajectory that the Chinese market takes, I think, will be the biggest determinant um, of meat consumption levels and, and fish consumption levels across Asia and and globally uh, in the decades to come. Great. Yeah, thank you. Um, another audience question. Are you aware of any recent progress on lab-grown meat? Is this likely to be available to consumers at scale in the near future? Tough question. <laughs> Definitely a tough question. Uh, yeah, so I think, I think I would encourage people to ask many different people. You know, one of the challenges in answering that question is that the, the players who are furthest along are the companies um, who, are, who are working on, on this, and uh, most of them have very uh, confidential intellectual property they're trying to protect. And, and so they, they can't uh, publicly disclose. Um, one thing I'd say is I think there's a big distinction in, in the at scale in that question. I think we definitely will see cultivated meat products or cell-based meat products um, on the market in the coming years uh, at, at some scale. Uh, initially, probably most of the products will be hybrid products. So they'll be majority plant-based. Um, but I think we'll definitely see those on, on sale. Um, I think the, the question is when will we see it um, at a much larger scale, when mm. we see it on sale in retail, when will we see it at an affordable price? And I think that's one where you, you'll find people in, who, who are in the know and have very divergent timeframes. And I think a lot of that has to do with their views on specific technological challenges around bioreactors, around cell media, um, and, and bringing down the costs involved in those processes. Yeah. And, and another question that often follows that is, you know, at what point will cultivated meat be um, like cost, cost competitive to the current meat that we have in supermarkets? It's, it's a really tough question and everyone gives you a different answer. But yeah, <laughs> I think it's, it's around the corner <laughs> in that's, my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, I, I just add, so, sorry, I just add one other thought yes, on please. that because I, I agree. I think that's a really good um, sort of thing to think about of, of how we reach the, the price of the meat we're trying to compete against. The, the price of different meats varies hugely. And so I think one thing that is very likely in this sector is we'll see cultivated meat initially competing with higher priced meats like foie gras or bluefin tuna and then getting down to, to premium beef. And even from premium beef, it's a very long way to get down to the price of chicken, for instance. And so um, I think, for instance, on seafood, a lot of seafood's already relatively expensive. So there's, there's more uh, scope to compete on price point in, in a nearer term than with other products. Absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. Um, and we're running out of time, but I just have one last question. What role do you see taxes playing in the reduction of animal products? And how effective is this mechanism in better representing impact in pricing? Yeah, so I think that it's animal products certainly right now are, are underpriced because they are not forced to reflect the externalities, uh, environmental, public health, uh, animal cruelty that they inflict. And, and so there's certainly a, a logical case for, for taxes. Uh, I, I tend to be pretty wary of taxes because it, the incarnations I've seen them put forward, um, they tend to be 
tethered to climate impacts specifically. Uh, we've seen that in a couple of countries like the Netherlands. And where that's the case, what they're going to do is, is drive up substantially the price of beef uh, without substantially affecting the price of chicken. And, and we know the differential between chicken and beef prices is the biggest driver of chicken consumption, at least in the US market, where it's been well studied. And, and obviously, uh, that means a lot more chickens, a lot more chicken suffering. Yeah. So um, we want to avoid those kind of unintended uh, consequences. I think in a lot of places, taxes are also needlessly uh, controversial, but I, but I think it will. It is only a matter of time, I think, before a country does introduce a, does introduce a meat tax. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you so much, Lewis. There are so many more questions, but if people want to learn more about um, open philanthropy, how can they um, get in touch or uh, get, stay updated? Sure. Yeah, I have a, a, a regular uh, newsletter. If you if you Google the uh, Open Philanthropy Farm Animal Welfare newsletter, I think you'll you'll hopefully find it. I'm on Twitter, and um, yeah, look look forward to to connecting uh, connecting with folks offline too. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Chat soon. Thank have you. a good day. Thanks. Bye. You too.